There is a a very old and well-worn story of a congregation who were planning a a new church building. And the the minister, the clergyman, was very excited about this new development. And uh, so he said uh, what he'd like to do is have one secret component in the building that no one would know uh, until the building was opened. The parish council agreed uh, to his proposal on the condition that they too had one secret component. And so the, uh, the building was constructed and the big opening day came around and the very first people to walk in uh, discovered only one pew in the church, right at the back. And so they sat in it and uh, once it was filled it shot straight to the front and another one popped up at the back and the, uh, the minister looked with great glee as his secret was discovered as for once his church was filled from the front rather than from the back. And he was feeling quite pleased with himself as the service uh, went on until he got up into the pulpit and after one minute of preaching promptly fell through the trapdoor <laughs> that they had prepared for him. Today uh, as we continue this uh, letter of 1 Corinthians we come to the whole subject of church building, church building projects. And like any building project we want to make sure that we are building something that lasts And uh, here in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, uh, we we have a building not constructed of bricks and wood, but of people. That's what the church is. It is a building made up of people. And this 2,000-year-old letter is is going to be our building manual as we think about what it would look like to build a church that lasts, lasts all the way up to the last day and through the last day that this world will see. And so that's what uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is all about. We're, We're going to see what it takes, what it looks like, to build a church that lasts. As far as Paul is concerned, this Corinthian church had been established well, it had had been built early well, but slowly as time has gone on, more and more the materials that they've used have been below par and more and more this building has started to look pretty ordinary indeed. And uh, what he does in uh, the early chapters is he keeps calling them back to what he thinks is going to help them rebuild their church. And you see that in verse 16 of our passage where he uses these words, don't you know? It's a phrase that he says some ten times in our letter. He keeps having to say it to them, don't you know? Have you forgotten? And really every time he says these words, he's thinking of the same thing. He's calling them back to the same thing. You remember it back in chapter 2, verse 2, the one thing he knew when he was with them, Christ and him crucified. Don't you know Christ? and him crucified. He says, if you know that, you will know what it takes to build a church that's going to last. And he talks about two things in our passage. This is what we're going to focus on. If you know Christ and him crucified, then you'll know what your role is in building this church and you'll know how to take great care in going about that role. You'll know what your role is and you'll know how to take great care in going about it. So let's look at each of those from our passage. First of all, know what your role is. And here he's speaking to all of the Corinthians, not just the leaders. He's speaking to everyone in a church. And we have a lot to learn here when we think about what our role is as part of this church family. When it comes to the Corinthians, when it comes to their building, more and more they had been thinking in worldly terms. That's what you see in the opening verses of our passage, especially when it came to their leaders. You remember that picture in chapter 1 how they gravitated towards different leaders. There was Apollos with his passionate preaching and his, and his clever words and he, he seemed to know the answer to everything. Some thought he was the bee's knees and so they all wanted to be gravitating around Apollos. Others thought Paul, the, their spiritual father, their, the church planner was the one to go around and so they'd set up parties around these different leaders. 
As far as Paul is concerned, this approach is worldly, mere human thinking, he says. They thought their approach was cultured and mature and effective. This is how you really build a a powerful church. But Paul responds and says, you're just thinking like men. Actually, he says something even more than that. He says, your mature and developed approach, it's, it's like the sort of things that infants do. You're acting like babies. And so Paul says to them, don't you know? Let me remind you of what your role is and the role of your leaders is in building this church. And really, in, in, from verse 5 onwards, he says a number of things that are going to tell us what our role is. And the first of them, perhaps the most important, you see there in verse 5, the heart of our role is service. Speaking of these leaders that they have elevated, he says, what after all is Apollos? This super apostle that you love so much, what's, what's Apollos? Or how about me, what's Paul? Only servants through whom you have come to believe, that's who they are. These leaders, these ministers that you so elevate, they're servants. Or, or more literally, the word minister means drinks waiter. When it comes to the church family, that's what the ministers are. They're the drinks waiters of the operation. Or as he puts it in verse 6, they're the farmhands, the, the planters and the waterers. That's their job, they're servants. And really anyone in ministry is just that, a servant. That's what the word means. Our role in this place is to serve. Here there are no masters, there's only one master, Jesus. He alone provides the tasks that we have before us in this service. He alone gives us the model of how we're going to serve. You pick that up in Mark chapter 10 where we see that the master of all served all. The master of all humbled himself and sacrificially gave himself. And that's the model we follow. A model completely at odds with the leadership patterns of this world, the work patterns of this world. And so whether we feel we have a leadership role here or not, everyone in this church family is called to serve. And you see also in verse 5 what we're to do, our service, our purpose is very clear. Servants through whom you came to believe. If you want to serve well in this place as part of this church family, no matter what your specific task might be, you are, your goal is the same. If you want to be about service here, you need to be thinking about how you can help people at their point of greatest need. Either becoming a Christian or growing as a Christian. Either coming into faith or building up that faith. That's the picture here in verse 5. And so if you're a parent here this morning, for instance, serving your children will mean all sorts of things, but above and beyond being their taxi driver, their provider, their event coordinator, their tutor perhaps at the moment, whatever else providing for them, serving them might mean, it means that you are the builder of their faith. That's your role. That's how you serve your child. And if there are other ways that you serve them, as good as they may be, if they make it difficult for you to fulfil that role, building up their faith, then that's not service. That's a disservice. And it's true of the variety of ministries that go on here during the week, from Friday Club to Toddler Group, from Mother's Union to One to One with a Student. The goal is the same. You are building people up in their faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says to us, don't you know you're a servant? The infantile Christian walks into church and says, what's in it for me? The mature Christian thinks like their Lord. 
humbly, costly gospel categories. So there's the first aspect of our role. Verse 5, the second you see in verse 6, we are servants in partnership. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. You notice how Paul here says that he and Apollos aren't in competition. This huge division that had been set up in the church between Paul and Apollos, he says, we're not divided. We're about the same thing. And uh, it's wonderful to see here that, that Paul doesn't pull rank. He doesn't throw the apostolic trump card down. I'm the apostle, Apollos isn't. No, he says, we're partners. We're in this together. And in doing so, he helps us think rightly about our ministry here together. We are partners. And I think that of the staff team that I am a part of. There's, there's lots of things that, that the clergy, for instance, cannot do in this place. And it's not just because of time constraints. It's to do with gift constraints and personality constraints and all sorts of other things. God sets up a partnership when he builds his church. And the same is true for the hundreds of people who minister here every week. It's happening right now. We are in partnership with those right over in the church centre, building up the faith of our children. We're in partnership with the musicians who have already served us. We're in partnership with the sidesmen who served us as we entered this building. We are building this church in partnership. The third aspect of our role you see in verse 9. We are servants, not owners. Now this is important for us because I suspect most of us in our working life or in our previous working life, most often we had a stake in what we were doing, whether we were shareholders in it, whether we owned the company, whatever it might have been, there was a stake in it for us. But that's not how God's family works. We are God's fellow workers. That doesn't mean that we're in partnership with him. It's like the, the, the director's table is God and us all together, equal stakeholders. No, there's one owner. He is the sole owner of this building, this church. In the same way a farmhand can't presume just because he works in the field, he owns the field. The same is true for us in ministry. We are servants, not masters. And so let me say, if you find yourself leading a ministry whatever it might be, running a small group, teaching a a kids' church class, running a music group. We must never make the mistake that leadership equals ownership. Like that that group was our little fiefdom where we call the shots, where we're in charge. Or perhaps more subtly, if we find our whole identity bound up in leading that group such that we'd find it very hard to ever let go of leading it, this is my group, we ought to be told how to lead it. Realise our service of that group may well be a disservice. And fourthly and finally in knowing our role, you see there in verse 7, you are servants for God's glory. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. I love this verse. There is great dignity in Christian ministry. Do you see how God doesn't give us meaningless, purposeless tasks in working in his field? He gives us things that are important. Watering, sowing seeds, things that produce things, things that lead the field to be fruitful. But all the growth comes from him. And so all the glory is rightfully his. So there it is. Know your role. You are a servant in partnership with others, working for your master Jesus and working for his glory. 
And then what Paul does for us is he says, if you know that role, now you need to know how to take great care in doing it. And the reason you need to take great care, and this is what verses 10 to 17 are all about, is that God loves his church, loves his church more than we could possibly imagine. It's an amazing treasure to him and he cares how we serve her. That's his point in these verses. Take care how you build, he says in verse 10. And I think it's a vital warning for us to hear because each one of us, even if we don't think we have a vital role here, can affect the way this church is built, can affect its, its, its makeup, what, what, it, what it's con, con, it consists of, by the way we think, the way we act, the way we teach each other. So Paul says, take care. And he gives us three reasons why you should take great care. First of them you see in verse 10 and 11, he says, because there is only one foundation you can build on. By the grace God has given me, he says, verse 10, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. Paul is telling us in 10 and 11 that there's only one thing that will make a church last, that will enable it to stand on that last day and that is a church built on Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is our foundation. Because as we saw back in chapter 1, he alone is our righteousness. He alone is our holiness and redemption. Without him we have nothing. And so in this place we are to be unashamedly all about him. Everything we say and do needs to be shaped by his cross, his grace, his sacrifice for us. And so building this church together is about building into each other's lives the news of the message of the cross. We build with grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. This is not a church built on works. It is not a church built on religious uh, practices. It is a church built on Christ because nothing else can stand under the weight of our sin. Nothing else can stand under the weight of our guilt. Nothing else can stand under the weight of all our hopes. Only Christ can because he is our power and wisdom, as Paul has been telling us. But let me say, when Paul says you can only build on one foundation, he's not saying that absolutely every church built on the cross will look the same, like a sort of a, a branch of McDonald's. They all end up looking exactly the same, seats in the same place. No, there'll be rich diversity in churches built on the cross. And you'll have known that if you've, you've come to this church from other churches in the past, that God willing were built on the cross. You'll know the rich diversity that's out there. I met with a couple this week who probably over the last decade have have been part of a Baptist church, an independent church, a couple of Anglican churches and here they are again. This is now their home. And as they came here, they weren't looking for an Anglican church. They weren't looking for a Baptist church or an independent church. They were looking for a church built on Christ and be encouraged that they found it here. And even across our ministries there is rich diversity, isn't there? Even uh, with, with the common foundation we have, the, the differences in our groups is amazing. You, you take, for instance, the small groups. There's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them and every single one has a different personality. Every single one has a different characteristic. All built on one foundation. Or take, for instance, the 8am service that happens here most Sundays. Compare that with EFK on a Friday night. You can't get two different meetings and yet they're both built on Christ and him crucified. So Paul says to us, there is much diversity but there is to be no diversity, no creativity whatsoever when it comes to our foundation. If we gather uh, in this building or gather anywhere else as a church, 
built on any other foundation other than Christ, we are no more than a social club and a social club with bad coffee and bad carpet. And know that building a church on the foundation of Christ doesn't happen by accident. Just because we have been built that way in the past doesn't mean we always will be. Building on Christ happens generation after generation after generation but it can be eroded in just one. One of the uh, quotes that stuck with me most when I was going through Bible college was this one, one generation declares the gospel, the next assumes it and the third forgets it. The UK and most of the Western world is full of third generation churches. So let us pray and plan and purposefully build on Christ. There's the first reason why it matters we take care. The second you see in verse 12 is that our work will be tested. Paul says this, If any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. You see, over time the Corinthians have been moving more away from this foundation of Christ and become more and more critical of Paul and his seemingly pathetic and tired old message of the cross. But Paul knows, as he will say very clearly in the next chapter, that it's not within the Corinthians' job description to test his work. God will do that. On the last day he will test all our work. And the test on that day won't be some fickle, faulty human test. It will be the day the Lord of heaven and earth tests all our ministry by the fire of his perfect, holy wisdom. On that day, what we have built will be plain. Our ministry will be shown for what it is. And do you know why God will test our work? I think it comes as a bit of a surprise if you look in verse 14, the reason he's going to test it. It's because he's gracious. It's because he longs to reward our labours. He has given us this wonderful job of building his church and he longs to reward our work. And so if we build on the foundation of Jesus using the incredibly precious material of the message of the cross, we can be sure our work will last and we can be sure we will receive his reward. What do you think it means to be rewarded by God? Imagine that. Well, first and foremost, it means, as the very next chapter will say, Paul says, I am looking forward to the day when God will praise my work. Can you imagine that? And think about the sort of people we, we seek praise from for, for our endeavours in this world, whether it be a spouse or a family member or a colleague or a boss. Imagine walking to the, up to the, the God of heaven and earth on that day and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a commendation to long for. There's another reward too that Paul speaks of in Thessalonians. He calls it his joy and crown. He calls it his trophy for his ministry. Do you know what it is? It's the people he served. It's that moment when he gets to heaven on that last day and he sees all around him those he served and he says, he's there. How good is that? And right now I have bouncing around my head all sorts of names of people I've worked with in the past and served in the past and I think, Why not be great to see them on that day? There is no reward that will compare with that. But if we build with the wisdom of this age, whether it be clever, lofty words or religious zealousness or appeal to human status or popularity or whatever else the world may cheer, all our labours, 
all of them, no matter how spectacular they look, will be burnt up on that day. Because we are building with something God has told us will pass away. We will be saved, says Paul, but we will suffer the great loss of seeing our life's work burn up before our eyes. I was thinking about that during the week and I remembered uh, before going on my very first camping trip uh, as, a, as a younger lad, uh, buying from the camping store what claimed to be the indestructible frying pan. I thought this can be perfect. I was so proud of it. The first night uh, standing uh, around the fire, I put my sausages on this indestructible frying pan, pointing out to everyone else that this was an indestructible frying pan. The only problem with my indestructible frying pan is that they hadn't bothered to build with it an indestructible handle on my frying pan and that very quickly melted before my very eyes. That's what Paul's talking about here, but it's more serious than frying pans. In fact, it's more serious than the metaphor he uses here, wood, hay or straw. Remember what this building is made of? People. Now you start to get a sense of what's at stake. This is a sober warning. It is only the ministry of the cross that will see people stand strong and blameless on that day. It will be terrible to arrive there and expect to see someone and they're missing. To look for people that we have ministered to over the years and they're not there because we have thought that the gospel of Christ was not enough for them or perhaps not what they needed. Now that's a loss that should steal our nerves to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified in our ministry. Unless people are built on the foundation of Jesus, they will not stand on that day. Our ministry must be about Jesus and the word that reveals him. Now I wrote that sentence during the week and I thought, that's like saying motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? Our our church must be about Jesus and the word of God. But let me ask you, when the pressure comes between the honour of Jesus and the honour of your denomination, which will you choose? When the clash comes between the word of God and our feelings, which will you choose? When the tension comes between the message of the cross and the opportunities this world offers your child for development, which will you choose? These are the tests of a mature Christian. Maturity as a Christian is not about age or experience. It is possible to be a churchgoer for decades and still act and think like a child. Christian maturity is all about knowing the immense value of Christ and him crucified and shaping all decisions, feelings and priorities around him. 1 Corinthians 3 is a call to make everything we do about him, not just our songs and sermons. Everything we do must proclaim Christ. Let me give you one third and final reason why it matters so much that we take care. You see it there in verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? When you come along on a Sunday, uh, what do you think you're coming to? How do you view being part of this church? What's it like? Well, do you see how God views it? We are his temple. We are the very place that God dwells. All throughout the Old Testament, the the temple was where God met with his people. It was a, a building built with precious materials. But all the way through the Old Testament, there was a promise of a new and better temple. And Paul says, you are that temple. The church is God's temple, his dwelling place. It is precious to him, more than you could imagine. 
So that means two huge things for us. Firstly, it tells you that this church is not about you or me or us. That's what the Corinthians had forgotten. Teachers had come in and they'd taken the spotlight off God, the spotlight off Jesus and put it on the Corinthians. It seems like a clever idea, doesn't it? You want a church to grow, focus on people and their needs. Church becomes a place where I'm at the centre. That was Corinth. But rather than lead to a flourishing church, it was destroying it. You see, the great kindness of God in building his church is to build her around Jesus, not around you. Because you were not created to be in the centre. It's kind of like taking a small child and putting the spotlight on them and saying, Johnny, you are the centre of the universe. Everything is about you. It's heady stuff for a while, but in the long term, hugely destructive. And haven't we seen that in recent weeks? So this is how I felt anyway, watching Susan Boyle on Britain's Got Talent the first few weeks, lauding this amazing person and the more the spotlight shone on her, the more she didn't want to be there, the more it was chewing her up. The church is about God, not us. And finally, the church is greatly loved by God and he will protect her. Do you see it there, verse 17? He's paid for this church with his blood. You could not be more valuable to him. He loves her and if anyone hurts her, if anyone hurts her, God is utterly opposed to them. And you couldn't pick a worse enemy. If anyone destroys God's temple, Paul says, God will destroy him. Now as we finish, we need to see here, we're not talking just about us. If we sort of shabbily build some of our ministry and it is burned up before us, we can all be guilty of that. We're talking here of the person who is opposed to the church built on Christ, who is opposed to a church built on the message of Jesus. And there are many enemies like that outside the church, but sadly there are some within This land and most of the Western world is full of churches who were once alive, built on the foundation of Christ, that are now drifting or dead. I feel that every time I go past an Anglican church that's now a carpet or rug store. I feel it when I think of the leader of the American Anglican church, Bishop Catherine Jeffords Scorey, who is slowly leading the US Anglican church into oblivion. And says things like this, I quote, To insist Jesus is the only way to God is to limit God. God is certainly at work in the lives of many other religious communities. God is at the very least a mystery. God's intention is to have people back in relationship with him. Sometimes that's through Jesus, but I cannot deny it is through other ways as well. To her and anyone else who would seek to destroy the church built on Christ and built on the message of Christ, Paul says God loves his church and he will protect it. Let me finish with this quote. Let us be vigilant to keep Christ as the foundation of our church. Let us make sure that the building blocks of our doctrine follow the beautiful contours of our foundation and not go off onto some little porch on the side that has no foundation under it. Let us take the attitudes of our church and set them down uh, on lines of the foundation and see whether they're off base and in need of correction. Let us bring all our ministries, all our building plans, all our financial goals and lay them like a transparency, like a blueprint over our foundation and see if they fit. Let Christ be the one and only foundation of this church. Let his influence be utterly pervasive in all we do. And as we go on, let the 
gold and silver and precious stones not be in our church building but in our doctrine and in our lives. Let's pray.